0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Greater Good Radio. I'm Bob Kosh, and we are broadcasting from WOR, 710 AM. We are the voice of New York. I'd like to invite everybody to drop by the website at www.greatergoodmediallc.com. whole bunch of things going on there. As you know, we will be starting our new program. Great Balls of Fire. It is the first comedy cooking show of its kind. It is going to be theater of the mind because we're putting it out over radio. But immediately after the Sunday broadcast at 6 p.m. starting on January 2nd, there will be a follow-up show called Counterintelligence, which will show you folks how to assemble the recipe that we are going to advance during the show. And that said, I want to uh, wish everybody a happy Hanukkah for those who celebrate and discuss a little something that I heard on the news, which I am just completely excited about. They look like there could be a real cure for cancer. Imagine you could cure cancer by targeting one tiny gene. Imagine that same gene occurred in every major cancer, including breast, prostate, lung, liver, and colon. Imagine that the gene is not essential for healthy activity, so you can attack it with few or no negative side effects. Cancer biologist Yibin Kang has spent more than 15 years investigating a little-known but deadly gene called MTDH, or metadarin which enables cancer in two important ways and which he can now disable in mice and in human tissue with a targeted experimental treatment that will be ready for human trials in the next few years. His work appears in two papers uh, that have been issued uh, by a publication called uh, Nature Cancer this truly is amazing I lost my mom to cancer it just runs rampant I don't know uh, about you folks but in the New York uh, tri-state area there seems to be over the past two generations a larger concentration in our area so I am gonna stay on this and we'll keep you posted you know folks I preach acceptance uh, in life It makes things easier to come to the realization, or in biblical terms, reach your epiphany. A surrendering to logic, which will make your journey, or anybody's journey, more palatable. I have experienced great joy, pleasure, along with pain, frustration, and denial, just like everybody. Take all of that and compare your own life's events that might have made you stray from what your hopes and dreams could have been. What is it inside of us that creates a stubbornness to push aside the sage advice given from some of our elders and 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 friends, maybe even family? And moreover, what about? The events, the abuse that makes many of us bury pain and shame deep inside of us for decades or possibly for the rest of our lives. You would think humans would have something which would allow us to say, hey, I'm hurting. Maybe it would be a good idea to talk to someone about this. But more times than not, your brain does everything to avoid that part of us that leads us to healing and the courage to really address trauma or hurt. My first guest I interviewed on Greater Good Radio was one of my best friends, Clark Fredericks. Clark was horrifically abused as a young child by a serial sexual predator named Dennis Peg. Peg was Clark's Boy Scout leader and a lieutenant in the Sussex County Sheriff's Department. Peg skillfully groomed Clark and continually threatened that if he had not remained silent about what had happened, he would kill his parents. Clark kept all of this to himself for over 30 years until he finally killed his former abuser when he witnessed Peg outside of a convenience store 30 years later with another young boy in tow. Clark took a plea bargain and was sentenced to a term of incarceration. After prison... He's dedicated his life to helping others confront their demons, especially when drugs and alcohol are the band-aids used to quell that pain. I was introduced to my first guest by Clark. He's Ed Shelton. Ed is a friend and a contributor to this show. He's he's the guy you've you've heard many times who has participated in many of the comedy bits that we've broadcasted over the past year um, since we've been on the air. Ed's story is dark, but unlike others who've had a troubled journey, it's a story of resilience and encouragement for others to maybe stop that pain. I'm very happy to announce that Ed will be with us uh, in the new show, and uh, I, I thought it was important for him to come on and tell you his story. Ed, thanks so much for being on Greater Good Radio. It's
1: a pleasure to be here with you,
0: Bob. And I would like you to tell our listeners who you are and and go back. I want them to know who you are, but who you were growing up.
1: Sure. Uh my name is Ed Shelton, Bob, and I uh I come from a small town in northwest New Jersey. I grew up in a upper middle class, uh very disciplined family. I had three sisters and a brother. We uh did a lot of traveling as little kids with our family, and things were weren't too bad as children. Although back in that day, Bob, I'm sure you know, um, discipline was a very big thing, and we were disciplined for any little thing that we did wrong. Right? Maybe, maybe by today's standard would be considered maybe a little extreme.
2: Sure.
1: Uh, and but that's the way I think it was then. You know, it wasn't yeah. like it, it was somewhat different than. Everybody else. Yep. And as time went on, I had a little episode that probably um, changed me a lot as a little kid. And that's when a family friend kind of took advantage of me. Right. And at that point, I uh, my grades went right downhill in grammar school. I I was no longer a student that could do anything right. Sure. I uh, didn't really pay attention. I was always happy to do summer schools. I didn't care anymore, you know? Right. I already noticed that things in my life were not right. And sure. I ended up going off to, I, I got to high school and... Uh, I could never, I, I fit in, but never fit in. I'm going to say I was more like a chameleon, you know? I could yeah. fit in with the sports crowd. I could fit in with the people that did the acting, the plays. But I never really had my fit, and I always kind of felt a little outside. And during that time, I became like a jokester, and I joked about everything. And that's so all right. I did. No, you know? That yeah. became my way of survival in high <clears> school. <throat> it supposed to be like the class clown. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that continued on. I didn't have the best of grades, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to go away to college, even though I didn't know what I wanted for, just to get away from everything here. And at that time, I did not have a great relationship with, like, women. Yeah. And uh, I could never really get serious. I couldn't really date them. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't even ask a girl to the prom. I had to have somebody ask for me. And I really look forward to it. I just want to get away from all the things that were going on here. and Basically, I looked at it like starting a new life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, right away, <laughs> I found one thing I could do better than anybody else is I found alcohol. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: And uh, it kind of made me forget about a lot of things in the past.
2: Sure.
1: And I remember, and at the time then, too, you could legally drink in the state of New York at 19. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Yeah, remember? So it was a lot absolutely. Of
0: different. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. So here I am. I'm a freshman up there. I remember I got in an argument with some of the guys in the dorm, and I was never really a big fighter. I really wouldn't put my fist to I think, because – Again, I was kind of taken advantage and beat up as a little kid, so I was always had that fear of fighting, you know. Yep. So I always found ways I would get you back. That's how that's how my life was. So okay. They, they really annoyed me. So what I did is I knew we had a dance that night at the college. Mm-hmm. I walked down to the liquor store. I bought a bunch of hard liquor and I brought it up. And I figured I'd get them prime before the dance. I knew I knew I could drink, but I wasn't sure about them. Well, in no time I found out that they could not drink the hard alcohol. And I loved it because they all were so drunk, they never made the dance. They all kind of collapsed. And I was the only one that kept going. And I just I loved it, you know? That was my first start that I now I know how to get revenge on. Yeah. And yeah. From that point on, unfortunately, the alcohol became something that I really took to
0: a liking. Sure. Sure. And, and it's, it- it's funny, Ed, because, you know, it, in so many circumstances and we've had uh, several discussions on this, it's funny how booze becomes your friend and then it just gets butt ugly.
1: Oh, it's at, at this point in my life, it was great. I mean, I I'm not going to say alcohol was horrible for me all the time. You know, I had I really enjoyed it. Some of the things I did were great. As time went on in college, you know, uh, I still never really say I gonna say fit in with all the people there, but there were always parties. There was always something, so I could always find my way to to drink and have a good time. Yep. Uh, there were a few other drugs that I would dabble in, but nothing really stuck like alcohol. Yeah, yeah. So when it comes time to graduate, I graduate and not sure what I'm going to do. I probably made a bad choice here. I went and I started working in the casinos in Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, back in that day, I mean the workers smoked on the casino floor you would drink with the customers so it was just a big party again so yeah so I left the casinos and then my drinking started becoming to a point where I would drink in the afternoon maybe at lunchtime on Fridays and then at home and before long it was every day at lunch and I started finding myself you know Falling and falling deeper into the despair of alcohol. Right. And at, at one point, I found myself drinking almost every day in the morning when I would wake up. I'd have a drink before I would do anything. And then maybe one at lunchtime, I'd go out at lunch. And then I would, on the car ride home, I'm uh, almost embarrassed to admit it, but I would stop at the liquor store and pick up like a half a pint or a pint, depending on how I felt, and I would actually mix that and drink that on the car ride home.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it got to the point where I start calling out of work sometimes, you know? And then finally, some people at work, I think, were catching on that there was something wrong. With me. Yeah. And they ended up sending me to a rehab center. And, uh, okay, I, I went because I didn't want to lose my job. hmm and it worked for a little while. I'm not going to say it didn't, yeah. but I really wasn't into that. And sure. eventually I said, oh, screw this. You know, I'm not paying attention to what they say. I'm smarter than they are. So I started drinking <laughs> again. So at that point, I found myself drinking constantly. I started waking up in the morning at six o'clock, drinking before I would. I wouldn't even have coffee anymore. I'd just have a drink, We'd get, bring a drink for Work in a Snapple or uh, iced tea. Uh, I'd leave at lunch to go have a drink. I would drink the whole whole bar ride home. How I was making a home. I don't know how I even survived these times. Yeah. I would come home, drink excessive till I'd collapse on the couch. Mm-hmm. Wake up and go to the bedroom, have another cocktail just to go back to bed. If I woke up in the middle of the night, I'd have another cocktail sleep for two hours, wake up at six, shower. I'd have to have that morning drink because I was shaking and so out of control. I didn't even yeah. know I was going to survive. Uh, I didn't care either, Bob. You know, I really yeah. didn't care if I woke up in the mornings. I just wanted that drink and everything I did relied on it. So yeah. I was probably drinking for almost 24 hours a day, pretty much. You know, I got wow. sober up a little bit, but as soon as I had a chance, boom, I had to have it. I remember wow. there were times, Bob, it's going to sound awful, but I would wake up in the wake. I would have myself a drink. And if I threw up sometimes right away having that drink, I was mad at myself. I just spoke to I
2: because mean, yeah.
0: I mean, that's just that's, insanity. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, no, I get it. And 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 you know what, Ed, it is just fascinating to hear. How this all progressed and how, listen, whether it's you or anybody else, how the human body can take that type of 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 ingestion of alcohol without, you know, you killing yourself.
1: I was, and that was just, just going to get to that. This is where my life really hit, I guess, the rock bottom and things had made. I needed to make the change and to be where I am today. And. You know it i've heard so many people say you know there's certain miracles well i can say i am a walking miracle now. yeah um so when this drinking got to the stage where it was all the time i was working for myself and i made a little injury and i had to go to the um urgent care and they had to stitch one of my fingers back and mm-hmm. it wasn't because of alcohol but when they Was it? Were when I was in there, the blood pressure and everything was so high. The doctor in the emergency care was kind of concerned, and I told him it's because of the injury. And every time I went back, I had to keep going back because the finger was pretty bad. Yeah. He always kept warning me about my blood pressure and everything else, and he said, you know, you really got to get this under control. And I said, oh, it's just because of this, just because of that. But I knew in my head, the reason it's so high is because the amount of alcohol I'm putting into my system. And he said, if you don't take care of this, you're going to have a stroke or a heart attack. Right. And at my, at the time, I really was kind of laughed it off. You know, I'm like, yeah, right. I'm too young Mm -hmm. for any of that. Sure. And then, (laughs) then came the morning, Bob. It was very short. I don't think it was a month after he had talk to me about that Mm -hmm. i had woken up in the morning and i felt i didn't feel right i felt a little dizzy and everything so i made myself my morning drink i drank it i went to work and i don't think i was even working for two hours when i was i collapsed right i was running a little like restaurant behind the bar there where i was working was a cement floor And I collapsed right there onto the cement floor. (sighs) When I did that, I cracked my skull. And the emergency, the ERs were called in. They took me to the hospital. and, And I remembered the car ride, the ambulance. And I remember getting to the hospital in Newton. When I was there, they did a CAT scan. They did everything. And the doctor came in. And he said, I still remember this because I remembered all this part. He said, young, young man, you're in very bad shape. You have blood going into your brain. Oh. So I've already called the helicopter. and We're going to uh, take you off to a trauma center. Mm-hmm. So I flew to the trauma center in the helicopter. I remember the helicopter ride. I remember being in the trauma center with all the lights and the nurses and the doctors all around me. And I remember asking when they were going to do something. I remember that. They said very soon. And then they put me in, in, to my mind, they put me in what I thought was a hallway looking at like emergency room doors. And that's the last real memory I have for almost two months straight. Wow. During that time, I had a stroke in the hospital. Uh, they tried putting drainage tubes in my brain. That didn't work. They had to do a anatomy because I had a subdural hematoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I did come around, I had very little movement of the left side of my body. It took another probably month or so to get that pummeled straightened out. And they told mm-hmm. me I was going to be in a nursing home for probably a year. Wow. And yeah, you know, that's, that's a, kind of a shocker when the, yeah. you're 50, you know, in your early 50s and you're just thinking you're still having fun. Sure, and, sure.
0: Uh, you know what, I, I, just, I, I just don't, it's, you know, as a young man, um, you always think that you're kind of invincible. And it's, it's just so, uh, so so poignant for, for that statement to have been made, you know, you just feel like, yeah, I'm in my early fifties. I'm okay. And you know, you don't take into consideration the limits that your body puts on you. Absolutely. You, you don't. And you know, I've had,
1: and the thing is, and I'm sure anybody else who's ad- addicted to anything has had the warning signs. I had the warning signs. Yeah. But yeah. Like anything else, you just think, Oh, that's it. It's nothing. It's nothing. Sure. And, uh, yeah, so they told me I'd be in the nursing home. But three months later, I was walking. Out, I could use my left arm again. They, at this point, I needed. To, I knew I needed some help, you know. Unfortunately, I, had, I didn't have insurance at the time. Oof. And nobody wanted to take you if you don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. The director of a place uh, it's called Mental Health America in Dutchess County, New York, in Poughkeepsie, mm-hmm the director there got me a bed there and it's a place for people who don't have anything. It's free. It doesn't cost you. Right. And so it's a great thing, you know, and I ended up spending 21 days there and a lot of the people who are there are from New York and they'll stay there until a place has a bed for them, like a St. Francis or a different um, alcohol treatment center or drug treatment center. I come home and I figure they don't know what they're talking about. I'm cured now. I can have one more, you know? Sure. And, uh, you hear that a lot. You know, so many people want to have that one more. And, you know, yeah. a lot a, a lot of them die on that one more run that I've seen it now. And it's really, I mean, it's so tragic. Sure. So I, I thought I had to have one more run. I mean, I'm not going to lie about that. So I did. I, You know, I drank a little bit again. and. It wasn't very long at all. I was back in a hospital bed again. People from this place called The Center came to see me. And we talked. I kind of listened. I went to a few AA meetings. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. I'll see yeah. what's going on. I'll see what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And then one night, my my girlfriend, who you've met, she's a she's the best thing that ever happened to me she came in she found me on the floor with a busted nose and uh, yeah you know I, and i cleaned myself up and that next day i remember looking in the mirror i thought to myself what in god's name are you doing to yourself you're going to die yeah is this really how you're going to leave this world you know i already lost my one brother to a suicide i know what it did to my family and i'm like all I'm doing is a slow suicide here it's just sure. gonna it's gonna it's gonna happen one day yeah, yeah 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 i i knew i was gonna lose lose maria i knew i was losing everything again and that's when i said you know every time i've gone to the aa programs and every time i've done things i've always done it somewhat my way mm-hmm. maybe this maybe this time i will do what they say and kind of do it the right way and those first three or four months, I'm not gonna lie, they were rough. They were a yeah. hard, rough road for me. But yeah. I did everything I could, and I fought it out. And it got to the point where I actually found myself enjoying hanging out with people that don't drink, yeah. and don't, yeah. and don't drugs. You know, because a lot of my friends would smoke pot or they would do coke. You know, I would, I did, I drank. I mean, we would all hang out. Yeah. I found myself staying away from all that and just started hanging out with the people in the A.A. groups. Yeah. And yeah. I ended up becoming great friends with them. I mean, the friendships that I've developed are friendships that I never, ever would have thought I would have had in my life. Right. I'm probably closer to these people. Than I am to some of the friends I've had for many years. Yeah. I think it's because we all have, you know, this, we all have a
0: common bond. Our stories are. That's that's really the whole thing, Ed. What I was going to comment on, too, it's, I mean, you know, when you do meet the other folks that have walked a mile in your shoes, you know, empathy, um, empathy, common sense, logic, and sympathy all have a very unique place when you really need to achieve the same thing and keeping each other in check, I think is just, you know, something that a lot of people don't grasp the importance of. And because, you know, I've known you for a couple of years now and, you know, you should be very proud of yourself to the point where you are today. And that's, you know, before we run out of time, I want you to, you know, uh, let everybody know how you're doing.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, the, the turnaround in my life has been 110 yeah. percent. Things are happening for me. Work is better. You know, but there was a time where I, I didn't care about things. And now because of the friendships and like I said, the camaraderie and so many people say, well, how come you just couldn't stop? You know, when you're an addict like that, you just can't stop. And you need to have the other people and be accountable and call people and talk to them. I started having meetings in my house over a year ago on Saturday nights. And now every Saturday night, I get people at my house. We have a nice big dinner. We celebrate. And then we have a big meeting. And it's become a huge family event. And I wouldn't give that up. And I wouldn't change that at all. There's certain people that I know of and they, they say they're part of the no matter what club and that is no matter what I'm not doing a drink or mm-hmm. I'm not doing any drugs today no matter yeah. what and I can yeah. say yeah I'm part of the no matter what club uh it's just it's tremendous quality when you get to this stage and yeah. I wouldn't yeah. give it up for anything and I look so forward to what the future going to hold for me now sure. because my life is controllable
0: yeah yeah. Ed, I wish you continued success and thanks so much for being on Greater Good Radio.
1: Bob, it's been a pleasure to work with you for the last year. And I'm just so glad I got an opportunity to tell people that there is another life out there and find it.
2: Yep.
0: Yeah. Thanks, bud.
1: Hey, thank you, Bob.
0: Communication is a vital part of our daily lives. Your ability to interact in a conversation depends greatly on what you hear. None of us want to miss out on those touching words from our grandkids or an I love you from someone we cherish. If you are experiencing hearing loss, the professionals at Audio Help Hearing Centers can provide comprehensive hearing health care so you can enjoy a better quality of life. The staff at Audio Help Hearing Centers know how important it is to hear, but moreover, the difference it makes when you can really listen. Schedule an appointment today by calling 888-832-9966 or by visiting our website at www.audiohelphearing.com. Offices are conveniently located in Manhattan, White Plains, and Stamford, Connecticut. You're listening to Greater Good Radio with Bob Kosh on WOR 710 AM, the voice of New York. Folks, I would like to introduce you to ShopLocalWay.com. Have you ever thought about that butcher in Passaic for that steak that you want? And what about the cheese in Montclair? And you know you've got to have that pumpernickel raisin bread from Manhattan. There's only one delivery service that can provide you with everything I just spoke about. It's shoplocalway.com. Shoplocal is the doorstep delivery service of high quality products from local businesses. They bring you the marketplace with exquisite local stores you will not find on any other platforms. Simply choose your favorites from local stores along with the delivery or pickup option and enjoy your time while the order is on its way. ShopLocalWay.com supports local business. It's the shops that you can't get from anywhere else. Remember, there's only one way to shop. ShopLocalWay.com. Call Shop Local at 833-463-4466 or visit the website at www.shoplocalway.com. There are many times I wish they'd let me do this show for more than one hour. This is one of those times My next guest is an individual who possesses a unique gift. He can look at, or review, or assess a topic, or take events from history and convey to a reader or audience the relevance, impact, and relation it plays with depth and purpose. Joe Doranson is an author, professor, historian, and Joe knows comedy. Joe actually details the roots of comedy in an upcoming film premiering this April on PBS entitled When Comedy Went to School. And there's much, much more. Joe, I can't tell you how happy I am that you're on our show today.
3: Thanks for having me. I would ask you to please tell
0: the audience who you are. And uh, t- t- there's just so much to talk about with you, what you've been up to lately.
3: Right. Well, I'm surviving lately. I had uh, open heart surgery in June and kidney surgery in November. Wow. And I feel like I'm a bionic man with all kinds of uh, new <laughs> yeah. n- new uh, vibes in me. Yep. And I also feel grateful to you for being uh, such a wonderful contributor, not only to this new venue that you started, but also you saved our uh, wonderful uh, movie, yeah. which is now on my wall The uh, when comedy went to school. You were the angel that came uh, down to earth because I remember when Larry made the film, he couldn't put it out until you came up with the necessary money. So, well, a belated thank you for that. Oh, uh, Joe! First of all, thank you for participating in the film.
0: I mean, your 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 participation was so important because I first of all I have a love of comedy, and and I know yeah. you do also. But the film really details in the film I'm talking about is one comedy went to school, which is premiering on PBS this April of 2022. And there's, there's, you know, there's so much to be said when any group of people can get together and laugh, but so much more that I was, uh, happy to participate in once again was you know the 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 history of comedy in Jewish humor um i have you know, all my life admired you know from adversity what what could get a laugh and it has been you know a pleasure to you know, kind of revive the memories from the Catskill Mountains and where where the Jewish population ended up from the New York City area, and and I would love for you to um, uh, tell the audience a little bit about Jewish humor.
3: Right. Well, uh, one of the uh, themes in all my work, whether it's sports or humor, is the uh, the outsider trying to enter mainstream America. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I wrote about Jackie Robinson or my newest book on the black athlete as hero, Mm -hmm. I see outsiders, people on the margin, people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds, trying to make the American dream a reality. And so humor was for me, a personal coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. I was born into a very dysfunctional family, as I've written, Mm -hmm. and humor enabled me to survive, just as it enabled many different groups, including Jews, to survive multiple challenges. And uh, it's not only a mechanism of defense, but it's also a way to get even and over uh, at the uh, people on top. Mm -hmm. So humor, basically, according to Gary Trudeau, should be punching upward, Mm -hmm. not downward, not demeaning people who have a lower economic or social station, Mm -hmm. but to try to level the playing field, whether it's sports or comedy. And it's interesting to note that uh, just as in boxing, you had uh, the Irish... Dominating boxing when they were uh, a very m- oppressed minority in the United States mm-hmm. due to Catholic, anti-Catholicism, which was rampant in the in the 19th century. Yeah. And then you had uh, Italians, uh, Jews joining the boxing uh, mm-hmm. culture. And then, of course, more recently, you have uh, blacks, Hispanics, Asians. So sports is a paradigm for social, not only social conflict, but maintaining social balance between those who have and those who have not. And that's what attracted me. Now, uh, given my Catskill background, we were very poor. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my first television set until 1955, a hand-me-down from a, a more affluent cousin. Mm-hmm. so going to the Catskills was a way to get a uh, to to get what the Yiddish call frische uh, loft fresh air mm-hmm. uh, where you could have your own group free from outside interference or even physical attacks right, uh, right. which was common in in uh, troubled neighborhoods like mine so the catskills was in a way a an escape from the heat, no air conditioning, and it was escape from um, an oppressive atmosphere. Yeah, uh, and of course the comedians picked up on that, and they were able to comment on everyday life, its foibles, its misfortunes, and uh, I'll just uh, and since we're on radio, I want to talk about radio. I remember listening to uh, soap operas with my mother. When my grandmother visited, we listened to soap operas in Yiddish, and there was a program called *Suras Palaitin, Trouble by Others. And my mother and grandmother used to laugh, and I said, how could you laugh? This is so sad. She says, we're laughing because other people are more miserable than we are. <laughs> so the laughter was was a sort of liberating, and, and it sort of put things in, in perspective. Yeah. The Catskills provided that outlet. We could laugh at each other. Mm-hmm. We could feel uh, independent of outside scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we could laugh at the comedians who became, uh, as your film so brilliantly pointed out, became mainstream jewish humor became american humor in the 1960s yeah it is
0: just you know to to look at the names as you just said that came out of the catskills is just mind-blowing you know a couple Mm -hmm. of weeks ago we were fortunate enough to have uh, robert klein on who narrates the film as you know and to really look at the list of, of comedians who were busboys there. I mean, Larry King, although he was not a comedian, he yeah. ended up at the Catskills and the memories he, he shared in the film, it, you know, just yeah. bring, brings brings laughter. You can't you, you, you can't get around it. Is there any particular comedian that stays with you that performed up there?
3: Yeah. Well, Lenny Bruce, uh, though I encountered Lenny uh, after the Catskill period, but I think he was really one of the most transformational comedians, taking on uh, all the uh, sacred cows of our culture Mm -hmm. and going uh, to the, uh, you might say, the bitter end and dying, unfortunately, uh, much too soon due to his drug addiction yeah um but before that Sid caesar and danny Kay certainly um went from the catskills to the big show Mm -hmm. uh they went to uh nightclubs they went to broadway and then of course radio which is I, i love the radio medium and i love wor i wanted to Uh, Digress a bit because I grew up listening to your station, yeah, or our station, Mutual Broadcasting. Sure, Sure. it's a hundred year anniversary this year, Joe. Yeah, I remember. uh, Actually, my last appearance on WR Radio was was with the gambling, uh, the third gambling. Oh, Oh, okay, (laughs) rambling. So I rambled, gambled, (laughs) and gambled. (laughs) But uh, I remember listening to Tom Mix and (laughs) shows like that, and. Um, I think Uncle Don, and I want to set the record straight, Uncle Don never did what he was alleged to have done, oh. saying that, the, no, that's a, a, a urban myth. Mm-hmm. He never mm-hmm. let the mic, uh, that, that was never substantiated.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so, unfortunately, Uncle Don uh, was fired as a result, but uh, unjustly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, WOR was was my escape hatch yeah. uh, with the serials. I was listening to WOR when I heard to my chagrin that President Roosevelt had died. Oh. And I remember leaving. I had a after-school program, mm-hmm. a, a Jewish school. And I remember after hearing this terrible news, crying all the way from my home, in the Williamsburg housing projects to the school on Manhattan Avenue, yeah. and for, as Alan King pointed out in one of his comedy routines, Jews worshipped three worlds: Develt this world, Yennevelt, the other world, and Roosevelt. <laughs> and so he, he he mentioned that in his house uh, he had a picture of Moses on one wall and Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the other. <laughs> both liberators
0: right right wow. yeah yeah it's you so, know joe it we we still w-o-r is the voice of new york and i i yeah. can say that you are absolutely the voice of new york huh,
3: what thank you what
0: you have brought to your community, through history, through comedy, through your writing, I please. You are yeah. You may have been rambling with gambling, but but Joe, you uh, you you, you yeah. set the stage for a lot of good stuff, my friend. I,
3: I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of the great sports casters, Stan Lomax, oh was oh, my yeah. guru, and he was on WOR yeah. for uh, I think over forty years. Yeah. And many years after retired, he came on PBS uh, radio, and I called in and I thanked him for all the wonderful stories. Mm-hmm. Unlike some of the myth makers like Bill Stern, who would create fantasies mm-hmm. after uh, you know misjudging uh, what he was watching and relating that to an audience, Stan Lomax was there, yeah. and actually, Stan Lomax also uh, broadcast. Uh, Nick games with Marty Glickman oh, and he wow. was one of the icons of mm-hmm. W.O.R. and should be remembered and and revered.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: I agree. And and one
0: thing I want to bring up, uh, I know yeah. I haven't shared this with you, but the audience knows we're bringing back some of that radio um, uh, drama uh, starting the first Sunday of 2022, um, we are launching a new half-hour comedy show uh, called Great Balls of Fire. It is a uh, a comedy cooking show that will oh. premiere on WOR. Sound effects. It's kind of old school but oh. cutting edge. It is funny, uh, Joe. I will send you an advance copy. We're gonna have a blast with this. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's how can you celebrate the 100 year anniversary without doing, you know, revisiting right. what really, you know, people sitting around, you know, the fire listening to, you know, yeah. that old radio. And and right. it's all theater of the mind, you know, yeah. how you can really picture a situation through sound, through a voice. Yeah. And that's that's once again, that's but that's what you brought to so many.
3: Yeah. And I think uh, radio more so than television uh, stretches the mind. <clears throat> television provides all the m- much too much information. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was that famous uh, critic of television who uh, whose name escapes me. He'll come back to me a l- later, senior moment at age 85. But he mentioned that radio is a hot medium. And Marshall McLuhan oh, and oh. and uh, Fordham Professor Honor uh, with a bow chair. Mm-hmm. And television is a cool medium. Yeah. But radio allows you to get involved where TV is distancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's why I still love radio and I love to listen to music on radio. Yeah. And I'm so glad that WOR is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. along with KDKA and in Pittsburgh yeah. among the first to launch this wonderful medium. Yep.
0: Yeah. Now tell me a, a little more about your latest book that you write uh, about right now.
3: Sure. It's coming out in April, 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, have to do the last bit of editing and uh, providing a, an index, but uh, it's, To give you a little background, I started this book over 20 years ago when I hosted or co-hosted, to be more accurate, a wonderful celebration of Jackie Robinson's life, Mm. who, in my judgment, is the most important athlete of the 20th century, along with maybe Muhammad Ali, who's in the book. And Jackie is the centerpiece of the book because he made... uh, a uh, black a black president possible, mm-hmm. he was the one who who appealed to all groups and particularly youngsters.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So uh, in my book on Jackie Robinson, I have a the cover photo which shows Jackie with his hand around a nine year old youngster at 1955 photo op day at Ebbets Field, right. <clears throat> and. Uh, that showed the ability of Jackie, who, who autographed uh, regularly, unlike some of the, the, uh, the divas today, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote letters back to his fans. Here he's holding this little Jewish boy <laughs> uh, who, uh, whose father uh, photographed this. And of course, it's, it's one of my iconic photos. And I will uh, try to get it into this latest book as well. Mm -hmm. So I hosted this conference, and many of the athletes I write about came to the conference at Long Island University, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I decided that I would like to expand and view the uh, black athlete as hero and look at them at different stages of our society and history. Mm So. In an original article I wrote in 1997, from which this book was launched, I started with Jack Johnson, who was uh, one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time. Mm -hmm. But he ran afoul of the law and uh, public opinion because he uh, consorted with white women, which was a no-no. And among the women were prostitutes, which is – so he – he uh, alienated the black clergy and and the white clergy. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: And, and but he he did something which was uh, unprecedented. Yeah. He won yeah. a title, and he yielded the title to pressure. He probably took a dive yeah. in Cuba, where he could fight an integrated fight without too much public opposition. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started with him and then I went to the 30s and I looked at uh, Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis, who were uh, unlike um, Jack Johnson, they were more acceptable to the broader audience, both black and white. Uh, They did not uh, flaunt their sexuality Mm -hmm. or their uh, uh, crossing the the color line with regard yeah. to uh, commercial affection or mm-hmm. sex. And, uh, and, of course, in 1936, Jesse Owens uh, amazed the world by taking four gold medals, unprecedented, yeah. in Hitler Germany. Yeah. And so the yeah. Berlin Olympics, which unfortunately was a showcase for German power, showed that a black athlete could prove that German racism was totally wrong in terms of superiority. And Joe Lewis, of course, when he beat Max Schmeling Mm -hmm. in a a return bout, uh, he proved that in 1938 that uh, he was our hero Mm -hmm. against the Jets. It was almost a a kind of surrogate war, proxy war. America, represented by the black champion, the brown bomber, sepia slugger against the German... uh, superman mm-hmm. and in one round two minutes and seven seconds the myth was destroyed then i went to uh jackie robinson mm-hmm. and i explained how he was a catalyst for social political and athletic change yeah. to me he is the supreme hero because yeah. he he overcame tremendous odds and then finally in this particular uh, i also look at muhammad ali who was divested of his uh, crown yeah. uh, because he refused to serve the army? Yeah. Uh, and with a classic remark I, I have no argument with those uh, uh, Viet Cong, uh, yeah. they never killed any of my people. Yeah. And uh, four years later, he came back and uh, uh, a little slower, a, a little heavier, yeah. but still with the great skill, and he became champion. And in beating George Foreman in the in that famous uh, Zaire about, Mm -hmm. he proved that older people like me can (laughs) can come back. (laughs) And he he uh, he did the rope a dope, which was totally uh, also totally without precedent, taking all that punching and then and then uh, unloading on uh, Foreman, and he sent him into a new business, you know, the, the Foreman Grill. Yeah. I, I, so I, I, that, that but but I mean I have so many different athletes, so I, I w- don't want to take up more time. But but I talk about the LeBron James and I talk about uh, uh, Tiger Woods, uh, both the positive and the negative, and I, I don't gild the lily. But but I I believe these athletes because of their their uh, power as athletes and money, they were able to uh, challenge the system and make America a better society. Well, Joe, the, you know, there are so many people who will now have the
0: benefit of realizing mm-hmm. everything that you've just said, because you always, there's no comeback. You've never left. Yeah. What you put to paper we will will live in history. And I I I genuinely thank you for being on the program today.
3: It is a pleasure and honor. And I want you to keep rolling along on your own because you've made a contribution that will last. Thank
0: Count you. On Count on it, Joe. Thanks. Well, folks, that's all we have for this week's episode of Greater Good Radio. Everybody have a great week, and we'll see you next time.